them do one move at a time. The U.S. Chess Podcast that explores people and organizations who are advancing our educational mission to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. Our goal is to give you ideas and methods you can use in your own community to help you build chess in your area one move at a time. Make sure to listen to our family of U.S. Chess Podcasts, which include cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, in which Chess Life editor John Hartman goes more in-depth with each month's cover story, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month, and that is hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and on the fourth Tuesday of each month, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karyanis, in which he examines the game's eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. All can be found at the podcast link on Chess Life Online at uschess.org, or by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Now, let's welcome our guest to this month's podcast. Welcome to the August edition of One Move at a Time. Our guest today is Christina Tina Schweiss, the executive director of the 501c3 nonprofit U.S. chess affiliate, Hampton Roads Chess Association. Hampton Roads is in Virginia and was named the 2017 U.S. Chess Club of the Year. The organization's mission statement is to bring the life benefits of chess to people of all ages and abilities throughout our region. She is a U.S. Chess Senior Tournament Director and Level 3 Advanced Chess Coach. Tina first became involved with chess when her then 8-year-old son started playing in tournaments in 2007, and it quickly became her life's passion. Tina is also this year's recipient of the U.S. Chess Scholastic Services Award for an individual. She grew up in Watertown, South Dakota, and went to the U.S. Military Academy straight out of high school, graduating from West Point in 1992. Commissioned a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army Signal Corps, specializing in communications and electronics, ranging from computer networks to tactical field communications to strategic satellite communications, her career included deployments to Iraq and Haiti and temporary duty around the nation and the world over the course of 20 years. At the midway point of her career, Tina transitioned into the new U.S. Army Strategic Plans and Policy career field and spent a tour teaching at the point before performing duties as a strategist for the remainder of her career, specializing in intra-agency coordination, conflict resolution and transformation, and peacebuilding, post-conflict reconstruction and stabilization operations, counterinsurgency, counter-threat finance, and counter-terrorism. She retired in 2012 with the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. Tina has three grown children, four grandchildren, and a dog, and lives in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Welcome to One Move at a Time, Christina Schweiss. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're, you're welcome. That's that's a heck of a resume, uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm sure that's going to lead to some uh, pretty interesting comments and questions as we go through, but let, let's start with the most obvious question. How did you get involved in chess beyond the chess parent level? Like most adults in America, at some point when I was a kid, somebody must have taught me how the pieces move, though I don't remember, um, because I at least knew that when my son started playing. Um, he had a went to a daycare where the guy that ran it was really into chess and had little tournaments for the kids. And my son is actually um, on the autism spectrum, so he, you know, he didn't. Uh, have much luck in, in a lot of team sports that require a lot of nonverbal communication and gross motor skills and that sort of thing. So I thought maybe chess was something he could compete in and that could be his thing. So we literally Googled um, competitive chess Hampton Roads 
And there was, lo and behold, a tournament coming up uh, that weekend right there near our house. And it was being run by Mike Hoffpar, um, who we all know and love from U.S. Chess is here in our area. Um, and from there, Mike pretty much, you know, talked me into being a scorekeeper um, at tournaments. And then he said, I have a great idea. Why don't you become a club TD and we'll take you to Orlando for nationals and be a scorekeeper down there. Showed up down there and they realized I was actually a TD and switched out my blue vest for red. Um, worked to the floor down there. And that's kind of, you know, I've grown up in, in tournament directing from that point forward to become a, a senior and close to getting all my credits for associate national when everything shut down. Um, and, and then got into uh, teaching chess and running chess programs um, when, I, when I retired from the military and started homeschooling my son. Um, back in the fall of 2012. Um, and I guess we, we can talk more about our, how our, our programs grew from there later on. Yeah. And, uh, you know, often people, uh, when they're chess parents, they, they're, they get a little bit bored just kind of hanging around waiting for their, their children to complete a round and look for something to volunteer their time and talents for. But it sounds like this time it was a little bit different. You were actively recruited by Mike when he saw you around. Uh, yes, that's that's pretty much what happened. <laughs> Mike has a way of doing that with parents. I think he, you know, my son was not, you know, he's he was about eight years old when he started and and he hadn't had any formal training, but did pretty well at his first tournament. And maybe Mike recognized that I was going to be somebody who was going to be coming back, so he would use me. For our listeners who don't know, Michael Hoffpower is a current member of our U.S. Chess Executive Board and a former president of the U.S. Chess Federation. So, Tina. Your, your, your military career is really interesting to me, and I'm, I'm curious how your military service, maybe specifically when you were a strategist and an officer, a leader, how did that or how does that directly translate to chess and running a nonprofit organization? Um, well, the, the connection between being a strategist and chess is, should be obvious um, to everybody who loves the game. Um, you know, so spending 20 plus years in the military and Sometimes I'll mention that to kids in, in class if they seem like they're drifting a little bit to kind of explain the difference between tactics and strategy. Um, and they'll really perk up when I mention that I served 20 years in the military. Um, obviously, you know, being a strategist, I had to, I had to make a lot of um, uh, it was strategic plans and policies. So I had to make a lot of long term plans and be able to, you know, make assumptions, use all the information we had and roll with the punches and change the plans. And it all translates directly into um, chess. I don't get to play as much as I'd like to um, because I'm a director. I'm usually working. Um, and I would say that a tournament director who's actually playing in a tournament without directing is probably your most formidable opponent um, because they're so grossly underrated. So um, when I do play rated chess about once every other year, I usually um, jump 200 rating points in the tournament and get all the upset prizes. So, um, but as far as the, the leadership piece goes, um, you know, the, just the planning and organizing and being able to lead people and build teams and um, delegate, which is hugely important as an organization grows, um, is, is probably the key to the success of our affiliate. Um, not only me, but we live in an area that has probably more military retirees and veterans than natives who grew up here. Um, and people in the military just have an innate sense of service to others. Um, so I have a, a tremendous number of volunteers who are um, 
active duty military, you know, fortunately we, you know, unfortunately we do lose those as they move out of the area. Um, but we get, um, you know, former military veterans and retirees and, and their spouses have the same sense of service. Um, so a lot of my volunteers, not all of them, but a lot of them are um, former or active military or families um, that, that put all their time into running the organization. And the, the reason you're on the show is, is mainly because of the Hampton Roads Chess Association. Why, why don't you talk a bit about the evolution of the organization, how it started and where it is now and where it's going? Sure. And I, this is, I really welcome the opportunity to talk about this because I'm very passionate about what we do and I would love, um, I am available and would love to help anyone who's interested in starting um, a club where they live. And, and uh, this did not happen overnight. So um, what happened was we had a handful of kids um, that started showing up at what we call the quote adult club, which is just a typical local chess club for all ages, adults, and a few advanced kids thrown in there that's been in this area for decades. Um, and some kids, some low rated kids and young kids started showing up. Um, the club was run by Ernie Schlick at the time, who's a, a chess icon in this area and was on the national scene um, earlier. Uh, and he, he did his best to put the kids in the back room and and have like separate section for them. And I thought, you know, why don't I take this off his hands and start something just for kids? And there was a couple of other homeschool families um, with, with uh, chess playing dads who, who wanted to help. So we started a club. Um, we got permission to use um, a school. We met after school. We had 18 kids. And all we did was meet once a week to play some rated games. So they were all U.S. chess members. Um, and with, with probably one outlier, the highest rated kid, um, the beginning of the season was probably about a 500. Um, from there, we, um, the, that school was torn down um, and to be rebuilt. Uh, we had a couple of meetings at a uh, local park, uh, chess days in the park over the summer, just to um, keep seeing each other. And uh, the second one that year, we invited the public. Um, that was back in 2014. And um, and we had a, a pretty good turnout and we taught some people how to play chess and people asked, um, do you have training? And at the time we said, no, we just play rated games. And then I just said, wow, there's a really high demand for chess classes here. So when we found a new place to meet at a volunteer rescue squad, we um, decided to open it for training and had about 20 new kids come um, and, and use group training based off the chess kid curriculum. Um, and then uh, more kids just kept walking in the door every week. Um, and it became a problem as far as being on lesson, you know, eight, and here comes a new kid. And then some of the kids were six and some were 16 and um, it started to diverge. So we created ability groups um, named, um, they're all named after fish or aquatic animals because we're in Virginia beach. So we had minnows and rockfish, dolphins, sharks, and orcas that first year. Um, and, and, we outgrew the rescue squad very quickly and found our home at our, um, our current home at Eastminster Presbyterian church. They've been so generous to us and allowed us to meet there for many years, um, at no cost. Um, and we just, from there, it just, we went from 20 kids to 40 to 60 to 80 to hundred, 125 lifted the cap further and went up to 150 and absolutely could not pack another body in that building. Um, and we ended up with a wait list of 80 to 100 kids at any given time trying to get into the club. Um, 
And uh, somewhere along this way, back in uh, 2016, we became a 501c3 to kind of open the door to the possibility of some major fundraising so that we can eventually have our own facility. Um, we Just this fall, we were taking advantage of, I guess, the silver lining of everything being pushed online um, because all of our classes transitioned online um, back in March. We did a very immediate um, shift with all of our school chess programs and and our, our main, our core youth club, which is Hampton Road Scholastic Chess Club, that's the one with the 150 kids in the wait list. Um, along the way, we also started teaching school chess and now have about 16 or 17 schools um, that we directly coach and a lot of others that we um, provide free mentorship and guidance to teachers or, or other staff members at the school who want to run um, chess clubs. Um, and in the fall, we're finally going to be opening to the public to eliminate our wait list um, and offer classes um, from a number of different curriculum choices that will all be held over Zoom. Um, and we do finally have a plan that's coming into place um, with some COVID protocols and whatnot to return um, in obviously a much um, more limited fashion to some over-the-board play at the church in September. Those numbers are really remarkable. And it strikes me that with a wait list that's almost two-thirds of what your current enrollment is, have you guys discussed the possibilities of just expanding, finding a different space and, and hiring more people? Or is that just not in the cards? Um, it's difficult to find a space that um, has enough classrooms for hundreds of people. Um, obviously, every all those plans are on hold right now until you know the, the world gets past uh, the current situation. Um, the plan is to open our own facility um, an actual, um, Hampton Roads, uh, chess, uh, facility. Um, and it would have, you know, eight to 10 classrooms and a large playing hall and a library computer room. Um, that's our ultimate plan to be able to cycle kids through classes on different nights, um, different nights that have tournaments and other activities. Um, um, for now, what we've done is, is actually created that exact thing in a virtual format. Um, we also realize there's a lot of people that, uh, when, when we get somebody on the wait list, they contact us and say, I want my kid to learn to play chess. They don't know what they don't know. So they're not really aware that this competitive chess thing exists. They just know that they've heard chess is good for kids. Um, and the only thing we had going pretty much the wait list was all about getting into the, um, youth tournament club, basically. Um, so we recognize a lot of people just want their kids to play chess so that they'll do better in school. Um, you know, life skills just for casual play fun because they want to play online with their deployed father or their grandfather across the country or something. So um, a lot of the classes that we're opening up this fall are, are solid chess curricula. So if they decided they did want to compete, um, they could easily roll into that, but they don't have to. Um, and we, we've never advertised before because we couldn't supply the demand that we already had. So we are uh, actually starting a um, paid marketing campaign um, next week. Um, and then we, you know, I do things like I gave a talk to um, our local homeschool population over Zoom and on Facebook Live um, about critical thinking through chess and how to incorporate that into your curriculum. Um, and we immediately got a lot of queries and signups um, for people after that, um, that talk. So just making people aware that um, chess can really, really improve your child's critical thinking. And, and parents right now are really 
they're scared about their kids' education. Um, in our area, they're only going back 100% virtual in the fall. And any plans to transition to a hybrid um, couple of days a week school in person and the rest online um, is going to depend on our numbers, which are, are currently spiking in our area. So we've got a lot of parents that are going to temporarily homeschool their kids and a lot of parents who are really scared that their kids are going to fall behind. Um, and we've been talking to those parents and saying, well, we can help fill a little bit of that gap with, um, with critical thinking. Let us teach your child how to play chess, and I promise it will pay academic dividends. So as Hampton Roads has made this pivot from the real world to the, the virtual world during the COVID pandemic, um, I, I, I'm, I'm reminded of that old military saying for, you know, prepare a battle plan, but then the first thing that goes out the window when the battle starts is the battle plan. Exactly. What was involved in, in making this pivot and, and shifting shifting course like this and, uh, you know, the, the stress that that must have put on staff and your your core constituency? Yeah, when, you know, obviously when it first happened, we were fortunate in the state of Virginia that we got our state championship in the weekend of March 8th through the 10th. Um, they were just starting to talk about COVID showing up at the time, so we, that's kind of a, a, obviously a culmination of um, most kids' season is going to the state championship um, in the spring. And um, our kids did a phenomenal job, brought home on tons of big trophies for individual and teams. Um, and, and we had an ice cream party the um, following club night on Tuesday, which we always do. It's our tradition. Um, we let some of the top finishing kids do simuls against their um, peers. We have cake, we have ice cream, and we just celebrate their accomplishments at the state championship. We had no idea that night that that was going to be the last time we were going to meet. Um, you know, for two weeks, much less, it's still going on indefinitely. So um, as soon as they said, uh, you know, that that following by that Friday, they had announced that schools were going to be um, canceled for a couple of weeks. And we just said we we saw the writing on the wall, I guess, and said, I don't think this is a two week deal. Um, we heard some stuff that was going on in other parts of the country and said, I think that they're not going back to school this year. So one thing that was really important to us was to plan for the worst and hope for the best. So, um, to make a plan and say, we're just going to go online. Now we're going to plan to finish our season that way. If they let us back, great. If not, we've got a plan. So we, um, you know, and it, it was a little bit of stress in the moment. I have a, um, we have a bookkeeper who's also a nonprofit consultant. Um, and the way my brain works, I'll have conversations with people and they'll, they'll say something and it'll put my brain in motion and, and, um, bring everything into action. You know, and she had said, well, can we do some of this online? Cause I mean, my biggest concern was for the kids missing out and for my coaches, um, to be, um, you know, without work. And some of them coach chess full time and some of them just do it a little bit on the side. Um, and, the the, um, I said, yeah, we can do this online. And so we, I got savvy on zoom, um, very quickly. We didn't miss, um, a single class over the course of, um, probably that, that weekend. Um, I think maybe we missed one night of chess, um, but, but a week at most, if I, I'd have to look back at my records, but, uh, we tr I trained the coaches as I could grab each one. I spent uh, most of every day on Zoom with coaches, training them how to use Zoom to teach. 
um, and then showing them how they could share their screen if they had their own chess, uh, you know, chess base or Fritz or whatever. Um, some of them like to show, you know, videos from chess kid in class or whatever. Um, and the coaches just got rolling with it, um, you know, showed the kids how to log on. And, and we, we, we have our classes. Uh, we actually have nine different ability groups at this point. Um, so we had nine different classes going on on Tuesday nights at any given time on Zoom. Um, we even loaned some uh, club laptops and devices to families that have too many kids to, to, to all be online at one time. Um, and then we got as many of our school chess programs as possible online as well. Um, and one thing that, you know, that became clear, unfortunately, is this pandemic really hit the kids in our Title I school districts a lot harder um, because the kids in our, you know, I would say our wealthy school districts, you know, they issue Chromebooks to all the kids. They've got good home Internet. They had no issue whatsoever finishing the season on Zoom. Um, the kids in the Title I schools, no Chromebook issue, you know, not sure what they have at home. Um, as far as devices or internet, and they sort of um, were not able to continue the season. Um, we tried very hard for weeks to try to make that work. And we actually have a plan in place um, this season um, with a virtual coaching program. If they have a device at home, they can log on, but it won't require the bandwidth um, and the cameras and whatnot that, um, that Zoom requires. But we're making a lot of other plans for the fall to try to um, – get those title one kids back into the, the mix. But um, yeah, we just, we really didn't skip a beat. We just transitioned immediately um, because we, we made the assumption right up front that this was going to be long-term and not two weeks. When you mentioned just before about the uh, various ability groups that jump back to something you said earlier that I found funny, uh, you had mentioned that they were all named after types of fish like minnows and such. Did anybody consider that, Fish is a derogatory term in the chess world. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we didn't. No, we uh, just because we're a beach town, so we chose the fish names. <laughs> yeah, you know, we and we added over time when we had to. We evolved to meet the needs of our members. So you know, we had a lot of younger siblings running around the club at some point um, that were just eager to get in there, but were a little too young to put into the regular classes. And I said, let's create a new group called Guppies. Um, for the four to six year old younger siblings. And, and we got them rolled in with a fantastic parent volunteer coach. Um, and then we had a group of kids that just started playing rated, but they were um, maybe went rated a little too soon and they were stuck below 300. And we created a group called Swordfish for them with a special coach to kind of get them unstuck from that level. Um, and then the kids just got better and better. So I, as I said, back when we started in February, 2014, our highest rated kid was probably a 500. Um, and now out of the 150 kids, probably about 90 of them are rated and the rest of them are in what we call our, our feeder programs from guppies through uh, rockfish that are still learning. And we haven't put them in, in rated competition yet. They play, they play tournaments, but they play in rookie sections um, that we don't report to U.S. chess. Um, exact replica of you know, a regular tournament so that they know how to do it when, when they do go rated. Um, but we added, we had so many kids get so good that, you know, we now have 25 kids, I think that are rated over a thousand and our top kid was just, just a few points shy of expert whenever things shut down and he's playing like a master at this point. Um, so we obviously had to add more groups and we added, uh, we couldn't go, Orca was top of the food chain. So the kids come up with the ideas for the names a lot of the time. So they came up with these, we had to add the Megalodons and the Mosasaurus. 
um, <laughs> above the orcas. And then we actually created a new group called Candidate Masters for the kids that were getting over 1,200. Um, so they got to ditch the fish names and and look look forward to trying to become masters. <laughs> yeah. Well, if, if we're including megalodons and such, I guess we can overlook the fact that an orca is not technically a fish. <laughs> <laughs> True. Aquatic yeah. creatures, I said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, go, so going back to your, your new virtual chess center, one of the things I saw is that you're planning outreach to veterans. Yeah. Uh, w- what is the reason for that? And, and talk uh, about the plans more in depth. Sure. And we have outreach to a variety of different groups. Um, that one in particular, um, I'm a veteran, obviously, so um, it's near and dear to my heart. There's There's been a lot of scientific studies done on school chess and how chess helps kids raise their test scores in school and raise their grades in school. There's not been any scientific studies that show the impact of chess on um, things like post-traumatic stress disorder or for seniors on dementia. But there's a whole lot of common sense and empirical evidence that shows that it, that it is helpful to those populations. Um, so I know, you know, myself, I, anybody who's been in the military for that length of time and been on deployment is going to struggle, um, you know, with, with having seen things and, and um, you know, experienced things that are going to be troubling to them um, for, you know, possibly the rest of their lives and, and you know, Obviously, we're not we're not um, pushing chess as a, a treatment or anything. All veterans should, you know, get um, counseling for post traumatic stress. But as a as something that can be helpful, um, I find that chess. I think because it it just takes every ounce of focus you have um, to put into you know all your your analysis of your moves and your calculations, and and it keeps your brain so engaged. Um, on the game that it just takes you away from everything else. Um, and when I hit those points where I'm just kind of like um, slowing down and, and not, not feeling productive and not feeling like um, I can, I can do anything else, I'll just hop on chess.com and play a bunch of 10 minute games. Um, it, I find it personally very, very, very uh, helpful, stress relieving. Um, I know tournament play can be a little stressful, but um, just playing casually um, is a huge stress relief. So, you know, we had planned to reach out, um, to our local veterans. Um, you know, once we had a chess center, we, we were before pre chess center, we were looking at, um, you know, talking to like local VFW posts or, um, th- there's like a DAV headquarters here and seeing if we could get, um, you know, some, a room in their facilities to teach some chess, which we probably still will do, um, when things go back a little bit to normal. Um, but for now we're planning to put together some special classes um, for the veterans and they're free. Um, so all of our outreach programs, so like veterans and seniors and at-risk youth and people with disabilities, they don't cost anything, um, to the, the student. Um, we still pay our coaches for that and we can, um, because we have a lot of very generous donors, um, that, that provide the funding that we need to pull those programs off. I'm I'm also curious, um, when, when you were deployed overseas, did you see chess being used uh, by service members during their their downtime, or how how popular or not was is chess? Yeah, in fact, I was. Um, I mean, I was in Baghdad, and um, I, I was I was stationed uh, um, in the in the green zone at the embassy. So we were actually inside Saddam Hussein's old palace, 
um, which was a good thing because there were there were a lot of rocket attacks and things going on at the time. And it was a very hardened building. So at least it was reassuring to be um, inside there. So it was a stressful time. Um, and, and I would uh, walk through the building, um, you know, kind of at night. And people work, by the way, when you're on deployment, there's not really a uh, nine to five. You're pretty much <laughs> um, on duty all the time. I mean, even working on a, a strategic level staff, I, my work days were probably about um, 16 to 18 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, but people would find those little pockets of, of um, downtime. And I would walk by um, sort of a, a, I guess it was a room they used as sort of a, a courtyard cafe type of thing um, with tables where people could sit. And I would see people playing chess. And I found out that they, they actually were having little tournaments. Somebody there was a chess player um, that was setting up little tournaments. Um, that was actually, think back, I was in Iraq in 2008. So my son had only just started playing chess the year prior. So I was still very new to it. Um, it was something I, I went over and talked to them and said, wow, I want to do this. Um, and my, my, my work schedule just never allowed me the time to do it. Um, but I definitely saw it happening for those who had a little bit of extra time. Um, I've also talked to, um, for example, we have the, the elite Navy SEALs um, in our area here in Virginia Beach. Um, I've spoken with family members um, of some of those guys and said, you know, can we can we give you a chess set, you know, for your for your spouse to take, you know, on deployment? Can we, you know, and teach them how to play chess? They're like, oh, they all know how to play chess um, because, you know, they go out on missions. And then when they're back at their bases deployed they're, they're that's downtime for them, um, you know, other than physical training and mission briefs and type of thing. So they do have. Um, free time. And she said, that's about all they do in their free time is play chess. So we did donate some chess sets to a, a local retreat center that serves um, special operations forces um, some years ago. Um, but it can be tough to link up with those guys directly to teach them anything uh, new that would help their game. There's other aspects of Hampton Roads that are, you're, you're doing so much there that is advancing our U.S. chess mission statement. And uh, so some of your work with people with disabilities is of interest to me, and I'm sure our listeners. Um, I, I know, for example, you sent a, a blind middle school child to the uh, World Disabled Youth uh, Championship, uh, talk about what you're doing, and uh, I understand you're even doing some innovative work with uh, people who have accessibility issues. Sure. So, um, I mean, the, the student that we took to the World Disabled Youth um, Championship, the FIDE event, a couple of years ago, was in one of our school chess programs. So, um, it was very uh, instructive for us um, to, to work with him and figure out how to teach him. Um, you know, and, and he's a very, very smart kid. He's obviously, he's at the, the he was at the gifted school. Um, you know, and we'd say, is there anything we can do to help you? Um, we, and he wanted to be, you know, in, in a main, in the main classroom, he didn't want to be broken out and, um, have anybody working with him one-on-one. -on -one. Um, you know, we'd tell the coach, okay, look, um, you know, the student in your class, um, he can't see what you're putting on the, the screen or the, the demo board. So you need, when you move a piece, you need to verbalize where you're moving it to you so he can move it on his braille board. Um, and the, the kid hung in there just fine. And it was a great learning experience for our coaches um, to know how to, um, you know, how to handle that if they've got a student um, with limited or no visibility um, in their class, how they have to go the extra step to verbalize um, 
you know, the moves so the student can keep up. Um, and they have to go, uh, I mean, there has to be a little bit slower and, and, uh, you know, preferably somebody sitting with the student that can, um, catch them up a little bit if the, if the, uh, coach goes too fast. Um, but you know, we, by working with him, we were able to notice things like, um, you know, getting him ready to go to the, the that tournament. And I said, uh, I looked in the rule book at all the things that the, uh, the uh, assistant is allowed to do. And there was nothing in there about touch move. And I contacted us chess and said, Hey, um, how is my student supposed to know if somebody's violating touch move? Can't his assistant tell him that if somebody violates touch move? Cause it's, it doesn't say they can in the rule book and they added it to the rule book. So um, we were very grateful for that. Um, we have a lot of students in our classes who are, um, we have ADHD um, and are on the autism spectrum. And that's not actually a disability when it comes to chess because those, the way that their minds work makes it actually, I, I feel like they have an advantage um, in chess over the rest of us because their minds are so amazing. Um, but we had, you know, one student who was, I guess, you know, autism is a spectrum. Um, and most of the kids we serve have what they used to call Asperger's syndrome, which is high functioning autism. Um, you know, we served one student this past season who um, was a little bit less, uh, a little bit um, lower functioning on the spectrum, very smart kid, um, just had more communication issues, and um, he had stimming issues where he needed to touch all the pieces. Um, and his coaches kept trying to say, um, no, you can't touch it. You can't touch it. That's touch move. And that would just send him into a meltdown. And so we developed a a procedure for him similar to a blind player where he got to use two boards when he played. Um, and one board we called his tactile board and we said, touch anything you want. And that's how he thought he needed to touch the pieces for his brain to work. So he got one board to, to touch, 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 whatever he wanted. And then we said, okay, when you shift over to this board, then you have to only move, um, you know, move what you're, what you intend to move. If you touch over there, you have to move it. So he did fine with that. And actually over the course of the season was able to um, ditch the second board over time and get to where he could just use one board. Um, so that was, you know, we had, we had talked to the um, accessibility and special circumstances committee about that to make sure it was okay. And they thought it was great, a great innovation. Um, we called it a STEM board um, for people with um, with autism. Um, of course, we all, we actually purchased um, four of the chess noters, which um, you know are still allowed here in the state of Virginia. The uh, approved electronic notation devices for our kids who have dyslexia and dysgraphia. Um, I had kids who were not wanting to go rated at all. Um, and they were quite good. And I was talking to the parents and, and said, what's the deal? And they said, he cannot keep notation. He's having a meltdown. He's dysgraphic. He's dyslexic. And I said, here, borrow one of these. We bought four of them and loaned them out. Um, and those kids were able to go rated um, as a result and go to tournaments with the chess noters. And they did great. So we're, we're always on the lookout for ways to help those kids um, succeed. Now, you used a term I had not heard before. Um, you, you said STEM boards, and you said he had stemming issues. What is the reason it's called that? So stemming, S-T-I-M, STEM, um, is a behavior that um, can be present with um, people on the autism spectrum. It's a repetitive motion issue. So it's a self-regulating behavior that they have um, where they feel the need to, you know, they're, they're without even thinking, it's just something that their body does where they, they're making the same repetitive motion 
could be with their head, with their hands, with any part of their body, just over and over. Um, and it's, it's just one of the ways that they help keep their, their emotions and their behavior regulated. And it's not um, something that they can really control. Um, so we were able to channel that into saying this is your STEM board and you can touch all you want on this. And then, you know, this particular player was in enough control that once he had, um, you know, touched everything that he needed to touch to, um, to be able to think, he was able to quickly reach over to the other board and move the piece. And then he would go back to touching everything, you know, and it was just like, you know, it's not like he was picking them up and analyzing moves. He just needs to constantly touch, 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 touch the tops of all the pieces. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, another thing I noticed as I was poking around your organization's website is that you've seemingly partnered with a lot of organizations. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, I see that you've started a preschool program partnered with Storytime Chess. Yeah. How, how much is this by design for the success of Hampton Roads and how much of this was just, it just evolved naturally? Um, so that particular partnership evolved because, uh, that was from, I have my guppies that I mentioned, my, my adorable little four to six year old chess players, some of whom um, raced through that program and are now some of the top rated six year olds um, in the country. Um, the, my coach for that, you know, he came up with his own curriculum. He used a lot of mini games, which are um, proven to work well with that age group. Um, and, and he really pioneered a curriculum that I've encouraged him to write down and possibly publish. Um, but you know, we're, we're moving more, we had probably 30 kids on the wait list in that age group. There's a very, very high demand for guppy age training. And I have to keep the class size very small by nature because they're very young and their parents have to sit in class with them. Um, and I, I would, we needed to start offering daytime classes virtually. And eventually when we have a chess center, we'll have daytime and after, you know, morning and afternoon classes for that group. And our coach, you know, he works for a living. He's a parent volunteer that was able to do that on a Tuesday night, but he can't, he can't coach for me, um, on a, in a morning or an afternoon or more than one day a week. So I said, we need a curriculum that I'm not going to say any coach, but any coach who's good with young children can teach without having to pioneer something, come up with something, um, you know, and our, our guppy coach had not, you know, captured everything in one booklet or anything for people to use. So we went out looking for um, a curriculum specifically for that age group that was prepackaged that any of my coaches who were good with young children could just pick up and teach. Um, and we only found a couple um, in the country that catered to that age group um, and that's the one we chose. Um, and, you know, we partner with, uh, um, these are some for-profit companies, but w by and large, we found that these companies are just as passionate about, um, you know, spreading chess as we are, and they're able to look past the, um, the, the profit. Um, and, and like a, for, for a lot of them, we're the first nonprofit they've ever worked with. And they'll give us um, special pricing um, and just really go out of their way to help us. We've got one company that's giving us very cheap um, online training accounts for the kids and throwing in free accounts for all my Title I schools that I work with. So, you know, they've just been, all of our partners have just been phenomenal in working with us to make sure that we can um, bring, bring chess to all of the kids in our area um, at a price that won't break our bank.
because, um, you know, we are a nonprofit. I do have to pay my coaches and I have other operating expenses, but we don't operate with a huge margin. And so listeners, if you're interested in learning more about Hampton Roads, their website is hrchessclub.org. And Tina, you you indicated that you'd be willing to help people who had questions, uh, wanted more information. What's the best way for them to reach you? Um, sure, they can. Um, they can actually. There's a lot of contact us links on that website that will take them directly to my um, my email address. Is probably the best way. We also have a Facebook page um, for Hampton Roads Chess Association that they can um, send us a message on the the Facebook page, and, and I'll get it that way. Okay, and and we've certainly covered a lot of ground here. But is there anything else that you uh, would like to share with our listeners? I guess just to reemphasize some of the some of the points. Um, a lot of people uh, look at what we have here and they say, man, we don't have anything like that where I live. I wish we did. And, and we are, because we are a highly um, military transient area, I get kids that come through the club that are military from military families and then they're here for a few years and they move on. And they're very sad when they get where they're going because they can't find anything like what we have here. And I just constantly tell people if you... Um, I guess from that, that old saying from the Field of Dreams movie, right? If you build it, they will come, but you have to start somewhere. Um, so you can't think to yourself that I have to build something um, this large and this complex with this many components. Uh, that is absolutely not how we started. Um, kind of, we had talked through the evolution and, and I like to tell people at a certain point, you know, and, you know, I get to the point where we move into the church and then I just say, and then this happened. Um, you know, so it's it's incremental, it's evolutionary. Um, just start somewhere and then uh, look to meet the needs of your customers or your players and what they need any given season or at the midpoint in the season. And you shift and you add something and you change something and you just keep uh, keep going that way. Um, you know, and it, and it'll eventually it's everyone's going to look different uh, based on what your players want and need. Um, but you have to be prepared to just start somewhere and don't be afraid of, um, you know, it being some huge endeavor right up front. Um, becoming a 501c3, we did not pay anybody to do that for us. So I actually published an article on Chess Kid back then um, that they can still find. Um, I think if you just go into Chess Kid or Google um, how to start a nonprofit chess club, Chess Kid or something like that, you can find it. Um, that we kind of figure it out on our own. And it's, it's actually about 13 different things you need to do to get all legal and get the state and federal, you know, tax paperwork done. Um, but we, you don't have to pay somebody thousands of dollars to become a nonprofit either. You can, you can definitely do that, um, on your own. So, um, and as far as operating, you know, in our current environment, I had a parent contact me the other day that said, um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're just putting it right out there that all of the training is going to be online all season. So we said, you know, we're going to return in person for some over the board play um, incrementally starting in September. But I'm here to promise you right now that when you sign up for a class, you don't have to worry halfway through the season that now it's at this location and you live 25 miles away. Um, and you can't make it. So the parents were very, very grateful that we just made a decision that we were going to do our training online the whole season because they have so much in their life that's up in the air. And no, no other organizations, including the schools and all their other activities, are making those kinds of bold 
um, season long or academic year long decisions and just saying, well, we're going to wait and see, we're going to wait and see. And that uncertainty causes a tremendous amount of stress um, for families um, and they're having a hard time dealing with it. So we found that they're very, very grateful that we just made a decision that we're going to, you know, be online all year. So um, I would tell everybody to plan for the worst right now and hope, hope for the best. Um, but, you know, get those online programs up and running. They're, they're hugely popular. I've got 130 kids this summer in our Coach Jay's Summer Chess Academy. We also partner with Coach Jay out in California. So um, 130 kids, and there were more trying to scramble in there at the last minute that I couldn't get in. But um, this online chess training has become very, very popular. Um, and we spent a lot of the time training our coaches to um, make it very engaging for the kids. So not only screen sharing um, chess databases for puzzles and stuff, but we use Kahoot quiz um, quiz games and and uh, Zoom polls. And um, last week at chess camp, we pioneered a way for the kids to stay on the Zoom call while they play chess on chess.com or whatever platform the coach has them on. Um, and they can chat with each other while they play. And it really built this environment that made it feel very much like they were physically together at chess club and they loved it. So we did a lot of work over the summer um, to make sure that when we launch again in the fall, our classes will be a lot higher caliber, um, you know, than being thrown into it overnight um, last March and, and said, okay, now teach online. Well, Tina, that, that's all very interesting. So thank you for sharing it all. And thank you for joining us on this month's episode of One Move at a Time. Thank you to you and your team for all the good work you're doing advancing the U.S. Chess Mission Statement. Uh, again, listeners, that website is hrchessclub.org. There's a lot of good information there. I, I recommend you go take a look. Thank you very much, Tina. Thanks, Stan, for having me again. Thank you for joining us on this edition of One Move at a Time, which always drops on the second Tuesday of each month. Our theme music was composed by National Master Alex King of Memphis, Tennessee. Our podcasts are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Our sister podcasts at US Chess are cover stories with Chess Life on the first Tuesday of each month, Ladies' Night, hosted by Women's Program Director Jennifer Shahadi on the third Tuesday of each month. And on the fourth Tuesday, Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant National Events Director, Pete Karianis. I hope that you've learned something of value that you can now use to help build chess in your own community. We'll be back next month with another Chess World personality who is helping us advance our mission statement to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. 